John chapter 13, verse number 1 says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own, which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. And the supper being ended, the devil, having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given him given all things into his hand, and that he was come from God and went to God. Now let's look down in verse number 16. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the servant is not greater than the Lord, neither is he that sent him greater than he that sent him. If ye know these things, happy are ye if ye do them. I speak not of you all. I know whom I have chosen, but he that the, but that the Scripture may be fulfilled, he that eateth bread with me hath lifted up his heel against me. Now, I tell you before it come, that when it has come to pass, you may believe that I am he. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that receiveth whom I send receiveth me, and he that receiveth me receiveth him that sent me. When Jesus had thus said, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you that one of you shall betray me. Then the disciples looked one another, doubting of whom he spake. And there was, leaning on Jesus' bosom, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Simon Peter therefore beckoned to him that he should ask him, ask who it should be of whom he spake. And lying on Jesus' breast, saith unto him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, He it is to whom I shall give a sop when I have dipped it. When he had dipped the sop, he gave to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. And after the sop, Satan entered into him. Then Jesus said unto him, Thou doest that thou doest do quickly. Now no man at the table knew for what intent he spake this unto him. For some of them thought because Judas had the bag that Jesus said unto him, buy those things which we have need of against the feast or that he should give him something to the poor. He then, having received the sop, went immediately out, and it was night. Therefore, when he was gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If, if God be glorified in him, God shall also glorify in him himself, and shall straightway glorify him. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You shall seek me, and as I said unto the Jews, whither I go, you cannot come. So now I say unto you, a new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another, as I have loved you, that you, you also love one another. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples. Simon Peter said unto him, Lord, whither goest thou? Jesus answered him, Whither I go, thou canst not follow me now, but thou shalt follow me afterwards. And Peter said unto him, Lord, why cannot I follow thee now? I will lay down my life for thy sake. And Jesus answered him, Will thou lay down thy life for my sake? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, The cock shall not crow till thou hast denied me thrice. This morning, I'm going to preach on the subject of, and just ask the question, what's the difference between Peter and Judas? What's the difference between Peter and Judas? Now, that was a long passage that I read, and 
I skipped the, the feet washing part, but if we take the whole path, if the passage as a whole, and not break it up into such small segments that, that we divorce it from everything that happened, I think there is, we can see a similarity between Peter and Judas here. But what, what makes the difference between the two? Sometimes we'll, we'll narrow in on Judas and then focus on all the, 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 the true evil that Judas did and then go on and, and almost say something completely opposite uh, about, about Peter. But, but what is it that makes the difference? And I think if, if we take the passage as a whole, we get the point of this and see that there is a major difference between the two, but not in so much their actions, but, but in the love of God. Jesus tells them plainly that somebody's going to betray him. And they're sitting there eating together and, and John's leaning up against Jesus. And he says the one that uh, Jesus loved, that's what John calls himself, the disciple that Jesus loved, not because Jesus didn't love the others, but John's writing this and he just can't get over the fact that Jesus loves him. And that's what he called himself. I'm the one that Jesus loved. And I hope that you feel that way. That, that you just can't get over the fact that Jesus would love you. That Jesus would, would know you and, and care for you and die for you and, and save your soul, child of God. We should have that, that view that, that Jesus loves even me. And that's why John says that. And Well, they're sitting there and it's, you know, in this chapter, Peter runs his mouth so much, but it's kind of funny that, that in this one section, um, Peter didn't speak up whenever um, Jesus said one of them would betray him. He, I don't know if he gave him a, a wink or whatever, but Simon Peter in verse 24 beckoned to him that he should ask who it is that he's talking about. So he says, ask him, John, and gave him some kind of signal. So John says, who is it? Jesus says, well, it's the one that sops with me. So it's the one that takes the bread and dips it. He's going to be the one that betrays. And this was a real betrayal. And the first thing we want to know this morning, this was a real betrayal. And we're going to see the sorrow of Christ. Because it says there in verse 21, when Jesus said this, he was troubled in spirit. Jesus was truly troubled. It really hurt Jesus, this betrayal. Yes, Jesus is truly God, but he's also truly man. You say, yeah, but Jesus knew it was going to happen. It did not take away from the fact of the hurt of the betrayal. Jesus actually quotes Psalm 41 in verse number 9 when he talks about one would lift up his heel against him. The betrayal of Judas did not take God by surprise. It didn't take Jesus by surprise either. Jesus knew the scriptures. And so when he knew the time had come and he knew Judas was going to go betray him, he quotes Psalm 41 verse 9. That, that, his, that his familiar friend, that the one that he'd ate with, the one that he had, he had lived with for so long, was about to betray him. Verse number 18 says, I know who I've chosen. He was, he was given comfort 
to the people, to his people. Happy are you if you know these things and do them. Happy are you if you're washed, Jesus said, and, and know the truth and know that you're washed and, and know these things and, and you do them. That's where your joy will be full. But I, I don't speak of all of you. He said in verse 18. Some of you have not been washed. One of you have not been washed, he said. One of you don't know these truths. One of you don't know me. But the scripture may be fulfilled. He that eateth bread with me hath lifted up his heel against me. He knew who he had uh, chosen. The betrayer was foretold hundreds of years before that he would, would betray. God had chosen his own in eternity past. And, and God didn't, didn't uh, wasn't taken by surprise that Judas was about to betray the Lord. God knew his own from eternity past and chose them unto salvation. Now, it's a difficult thing to do to try to make a case against God's sovereignty and salvation and election when you talk about Judas. It'd be a difficult case to be able to say, well, God doesn't choose unto salvation whenever hundreds of years before God said that the Judas would betray Jesus, where it was foretold of Scripture that this would happen. That, that Jesus looked at his disciples and knew one of them was a devil. Jesus calls, in chapter 17, verse 12, he calls him the son of perdition. So, so Jesus knows his own. Jesus has come to save his own. That's how John starts off this chapter. It's why I read it. He knew, um, he loved those whom his father had given him. Those were in the world. He loved them unto the end. And he says, I'm going to tell you that one of you is going to betray me for your comfort. To not, so you'll believe upon me. Not only do you have the Psalm 41.9, but you also have Psalm 109.8, let his day be few and another take his office. We learned from the book of Acts that, that that was talking about Judas as well. But it's interesting that the scripture was fulfilled in Psalm 41 um, as David wrote that psalm. And that was, I believe, uh, referring to Ahithophel and his dealings with Ahithophel. Now, that's a, that's a pretty interesting story of itself. That um, after David sinned with Bathsheba, everything in David's life just fell apart. And that was the judgment of God, a consequence of sin in David's house. The sword didn't leave his house, and he had trouble the rest of his days. Um, David was saved. David um, was God's child. God loved David. But the consequences of sin um, never left his house after his dealing with Bathsheba and, and then um, Uriah. Well, one of the fruits of that and one of the consequences of that was with David's son, Amon, and his daughter, Tamar. And Amon, as you know, violated his sister in a bad way. And Tamar was Absalom's full sister. And whenever David found out what Amon had done to his daughter, David got mad, but he didn't do anything. He, he was really mad about it, but it didn't punish him and just sort of just let it go. Well, that infuriated Absalom because if you don't deal with the evildoer, you're 
punishing the wicked. Or you're, you're punishing the innocent, rather. So just think about it in, the, in regular justice. If someone has been, a crime has been committed against somebody, and the judge lets the criminal go free, well, who's the only one that gets hurt? Well, it's the, the innocent party is the one that gets hurt out of all this. Um, and they're the one that's punished, but if the evildoer goes free. Well, there was no justice there, and Absalom gets mad about that, and he holds a grudge that he never does let go of. Well, Absalom took matters into his own hands. He throws a big party for all of his siblings and invites Amon, tells David he can come too, but David doesn't come. Well, the, the party was a ruse. It was a conspiracy against Amon, and whenever everybody arrives... He has him assassinated. So, so in order to bring justice or judgment upon Amon, he murders him. Well, Absalom takes off and runs, uh, knowing that uh, David would probably punish him for this. And he goes off and hides for several years. Finally, David brings Absalom back, but didn't fully restore him. He said, you can come back, but just not all the way. So you can come back to the area, but you know, I, I don't want to have any dealings with you. Well, that didn't help Absalom's grudge against his dad, and it only poured fuel in the fire, really, because then Absalom's decided he's going to take the kingdom from his dad. And so he goes and he sits out at the, the gate, and people will come for the judgment. Uh, you know, they might have a quarrel with their neighbor or somebody, and they come to the judge, and Absalom was there and said, Boy, if I was king, I'd rule in your favor. Too bad David's not out here to judge. Um, a good king would be out here and a good king would judge in your favor because you're in the right. Well, they go home and say, you know that Absalom, he's a good man. He's a, he's a smart guy. He's a, he's a lot better than David is. David's getting old. He's not doing much around the kingdom anymore. We need a man like Absalom in office. Absalom was a politician. He's a good one because in a matter of time, he had stolen the affections of the people from King David. Until the point that the people wished Absalom was king. And so that was a very subtle, very crafty move that Absalom made. He didn't just come in right away and just try to take down David. Well, first he, he stole the hearts. And all the while, David didn't even realize this was going on. Well, when the time was right, after a long time, David or Absalom had the hearts of the people of the kingdom. He started a coup and took over the kingdom. And this caused David to have to run for his life. So David and his mighty men and some followers had to leave Jerusalem. They had to abandon it and go out into the wilderness because Absalom had taken the kingdom. And everybody was going along with it, and they, they were happy about it. Especially the tribe of Benjamin, who were, they were still mad at David over, um, over Saul. And so they were happy to, to get rid of David. And so David and his followers run for their lives. Well, Ahithophel, and if you read it, it may have been Bathsheba's grandpa. Um, if, you read, if you compare 2 Samuel 11 and 2 Samuel 23, it may have been uh, uh, Bathsheba's grandpa. But anyway, he was one of the most trusted count of David's counselors. Politically speaking, he was cunning. He was subtle. He had all the right answers. 2 Samuel 16.23 says the counsel of Ahithophel when he counseled in those days was this, as if a man had inquired at the oracle of God. 
So was all the council of Ahithophel, both with David and with Absalom. Politically speaking, there wasn't a better man than Ahithophel to get advice from. You could go to Ahithophel and say, should we raise taxes? No, I wouldn't raise taxes just yet. Uh, I would wait. Or yes, I would. Or whatever the case may be, he had the answers. And his answers were so good that people said, well, it's almost as if God is speaking to him. He's never wrong. Should we attack the Philistines? Let's go ask Ahithophel see what he says. No, you better not do it right now. Or yes, you better do it. Or if you go, you better take so many troops. You know, he was just that wise in the, in the things of the world. Well, Ahithophel, whenever Absalom started rising the ranks, perceived, I think, that, that Absalom had the heart of the people and he said, you know what? The ships, the tides have turned the ships are heading out, and, and David's the man of the past. I'm going to hitch my wagon to Ahithophel. And so when David left, Ahithophel stayed with Absalom. So, you know, he was part of the, he was part of the uh, political establishment, we might say, and he didn't care who was in charge as long as he was in the seats of power. So Ahithophel is involved in this conspiracy against David. Here was his trusted friend and trusted advisor. Anytime David had a problem, he would go to Hithophel. He sat at his table. He ate his bread. He counseled him. David told him his problems. He confided in him. He told him, you know, if you're going to get counsel for somebody, you're going to tell them your problems. You're going to tell them your weaknesses. You're going to tell them where where you're weak and, and where you need help. And Ahithophel knew all this stuff. He was his trusted, close advisor. And now, to add insult to injury, not only has his son abandoned him, but here is his friend who sat at his table, who ate his bread, who, who David paid and took care of and loved, has deserted him. And not only deserted him, now he's going to work against him. Because now he's going to give advice to Absalom. And David's thinking he's giving him advice and he's going to take that trusted counsel and use it against me. Well, word got back to David that his friend betrayed him. And so David sends Hushai back to Jerusalem and he said, you pretend that you're with Absalom too and that way I can have somebody in on the inside and you pretend like you've joined the conspiracy and, and help me out. So Hushai goes back. Well, Ahithophel knew what was about to happen. He knew his state of mind. And uh, he comes in and says, you know, David is weak and weary-handed. You took him by surprise. And now, emotionally, he's a wreck because his son betrayed him. This wasn't the Philistines that got him. This was his own son. And emotionally, he's a wreck. His mind is going in a thousand different directions. Physically, he's weak. He's only got a few people with him. The people who are with him are weak, and they don't know which direction to go. Hithophel said, while he's weak, while he's down for the count, let me take 12,000 men and just charge right at him. His guys will just run all over the place. I'll kill David, and I'll be over with. Everybody else can live. David will be the only casualty. I've got him. Let, let's just go strike while the iron's heart. We'll get rid of him. Well, it's actually a brilliant plan. Because 
David was in such a bad position, he's got him. Got him right where he wanted. Well, Hushai, David's friend, comes and offers a counter strategy. He said, no, that's not a good idea. David's like a mama bear. Robbed of her cubs. David's furious. David's the giant killer. David's the, the Goliath slayer. He's the Philistine slayer. And you go into David right now, you're just like, it's walking into a hornet's nest. Or he, he said like a, a mama bear robbed of her cubs. And, and he'll eat you alive. David's a brilliant military strategist. He's probably already got a trap set up for you. He's not going to be among his people. He, he's going to be um, ready for you. Now we know from 2 Samuel that Ahithophel was right. You read David during that time, you know, he's just, you can just see, you can just picture David with his head dropped and dragging his feet and, and just overcome with sorrow and, and knowing that, that the sword came upon him because of his sin. And, and he was, Ahithophel was exactly right. But, but God directed Absalom's mind to go with Hushai and take the wrong advice. And it ended up um, that Absalom, of course, um, was killed in the battle following the bad advice. Well, Hithophel knew the writing on the wall because whenever he didn't listen to him, he knew what was going to happen. He knew that David was going to beat Absalom, that Absalom had spent all those years crafting and planning to, to take the kingdom, and then he blew it right at the last. He had already betrayed David, and when David comes back, which he was going to, that he was going to die. So he went home, put his house in order, and hung himself. Well, when, when David wrote Psalm 41, he was pouring out his emotions of that betrayal. How, how terrible it was for that man to betray him. Well, Jesus Christ tells us that he was troubled in spirit here in John. And what Judas is about to do has set in motion his death on the cross. That Judas has betrayed Jesus, which has started the events to which Jesus will soon, in just a few hours, be hanging there. Suffering. And dying. Now we're not talking about somebody that just talks behind your back. You know, a, a friend or somebody that, that says bad things about you and he gets back to you. We're talking about someone who, who has betrayed you unto death. One that Jesus had ate with and talked to and, and prayed for. So the first thing we know is Jesus truly sorrowed. Even though it was ordained, didn't mean that Jesus didn't feel the sting of this betrayal. Just because Romans 8.28 is true doesn't mean that hard provinces don't hurt us. Right? Just because, just because we know all things work together for good doesn't mean it doesn't hurt us when those things that work together and that afflict us don't hurt us. Even though we know that our deaths are appointed by God and that day of death has been appointed by God doesn't mean that we don't also sorrow. Well, I stood by Sister Kiger's graveside, stood by her casket as, 
as I heard the promises of 1 Corinthians 15. So there I saw Sister Kiger's casket and stood there and I heard, for this corruptible must put on incorruption, this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of sin is death, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And as I heard that, I saw the casket there, and I saw the family with tears in their eyes. You can see just the, the sorrow in their, their, their faces. And, and there were people that heard that and were clinging to Christ clinging to these promises, knowing in every fiber of their being that these were true and that they would one day see their, their dear mother, their dear wife, uh, their dear grandmother, they would see her again. But that did not take away the, the hurt, you see. It did not take away the, the, the pain and the sorrow that they felt. So you say, well, Jesus knew this was going to happen. But that didn't take away from the fact that he, he was betrayed. And so the, the Psalm 41 that Jesus quotes also talks about the, the hurt of the betrayal. Spurgeon said the kiss of the traitor wounded the Lord's heart just as much as the nail of his wounded hand. Jesus admitted Judas into his company. He traveled with him. He served with him. He ate with him. He trusted Judas with the money. And anybody who's been betrayed knows the betrayal of a close friend, the sorrow of betrayal. Jesus had done nothing good but good for Judas. Jesus was nothing but kind to Judas. Psalm 55, 12 says, For it was not an enemy that reproached me, then I could have borne it. Neither was it he that hated me that did magnify himself against me. Then I would have hid myself from him. But it was thou, a man, mine equal, my God, mine acquaintance. We took sweet counsel together and walked into the house of God in company. I think that's talking about Hithophel too, but, but you can understand that. Jesus wasn't hurt by the Pharisees' betrayal because they hated him and they knew, he knew that they hated him and and. They spent every waking moment trying to trap Jesus. But here was, his, here was Judas, one of his company, one he ate with. He had just washed the feet of Judas. And now he gets up to, to sell him for the price of a slave for 30 pieces of silver. Why do I bring this out? Well, Hebrews 2.16 tells us this. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of his people. For in that he tempted, he has suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. Seeing then that, and then verse, uh, chapter 4 and verse uh, 14. Seeing then... 
that we have a great high priest that is passing the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted, like as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly into the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Ahithophel's counsel um, pictured what Jesus endured, but it also reminds us that our high priest knows the pain and sorrow of our humanity and the weakness of our flesh and the weakness of our frame. And Jesus didn't come to die for perfect people and to come to die for the strong people, but he came to die for those that he loved. And knowing the weakness of humanity and knowing the pain of a sorrow uh, living in a sin-cursed world, our high priest is able to help us and, and bids us come to him. Come to him boldly. Come to him confidently with assurance to the throne of grace that you might find mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. Some people say that you have to prepare yourself in order to come and you have to cleanse yourself in order to come to Jesus. And you're, or you have to be in the right frame of mind before you can come and worship God. Well, the text tells us that we can find mercy and grace to help in a time of need. That's not when we're doing okay. That's when we're at our lowest ebb. We can come confidently and assuredly. So our, our high priest knows our frame. It also reminds us that the council ended up being ignored by Ahithophel and his plan fell through. That even the most cunning and subtle politician was not able to thwart God's design. And this is one thing that he's, Jesus is telling. I know that I said, the, what's the difference between Judas and Peter? Well, this, I'm setting this up to show you uh, the, the main thrust of this. That, that despite the most evil designs, God is faithful to his word and will see his plan carried through to the end. Yes, David sinned with Bathsheba. Yes, David sinned even worse with Uriah and with Ammon and with Absalom. And it's just one error after another after another. But God was faithful to David. He was faithful to his promise to David. He never abandoned David. He never forsook David. David had made many mistakes. Sinned greatly against God. But God was faithful to his word to David and preserved David and kept David because David, he promised David that throne. Well, what does that figure? What does that prefigure? Well, that pre pre the reason that God promised David is because there was going to be a greater than David that was going to sit upon that throne. A greater than David would come. One who was not a sinner. One who was not um, uh, fallible like David was. One who would not fail time and time again. And so God is faithful to his promise that as Ahithophel and Absalom conspired and had a brilliant plan and it almost worked in speaking as a man. They almost did it. It was all part of God's design and that subtlety collapsed upon them. 
And Judas was ever so clever. And the high priests were ever so clever in, in, in manipulating Pilate and setting the stage and getting this all together, filled with Satan, ever so clever, ever so subtle. But it all collapsed in on them, and their design to take Jesus out was ultimately their own, their own doom. Satan's plan to, to get rid of Jesus was ultimately the doom of Satan. What, what bruised Jesus' heel crushed Satan's head. So God is faithful to his promise. God is faithful to his word. And nothing will thwart God's design. Okay, so now let, let's think about Judas for a second. Judas had a hard heart. The teaching of Jesus, Jesus didn't move him. The washing of his feet didn't move him. It didn't stir him. As Jesus bowed down before Judas and washed his feet, meant nothing to him. When Jesus revealed to Judas that he knew what he was up to, I know what you're planning. I know what you're up to. When he said, that thou doest do quickly, Jesus wasn't afraid of Judas or wasn't taken surprise. I know what you're doing, Judas. Just go on and do it, if that's your design. But even then, Judas' heart was so black, so dead, he wasn't even moved or stirred um, whenever he's called out on his betrayal. Judas did the works of Satan. Verse 27 tells us, and verse 2 tells us, that, uh, that that was the work of Satan. Satan entered him, it says. Judas willingly sold out Jesus for financial gain. And once he saw that Jesus wasn't going to take up uh, and be the king of Jerusalem, just like Ahithophel, he jumped ship. Ahithophel was fine to be David's counselor as long as David was king. When he saw Absalom rising to power, he said, well, I've rode rode that ship as long as it's going to go. Time to jump ship and go somewhere else. Judas realized that Jesus was going to die See, I thought Jesus was going to set up his kingdom. I thought I was going to get to rule and reign on this earth. But I guess that's not going to happen. Looks like the chief priests have won the day. I'm going to jump ship and get back on that side. So he sells Jesus out. He could have been angry when he got publicly rebuked. Remember at Simon the Leopard's house when he got after um, Mary for breaking the alabaster box and said, so, well, you could have sold that and gave it to the poor and Jesus rebuked him in that house full of people. Maybe he got mad about that. People get mad if you get... The guilty people get mad when you rebuke them. Innocent people don't get mad or people who, um, who are penitent don't get mad when you rebuke them. It's guilty people that get mad. But he's doing the work of Satan. That doesn't dissolve him or absolve him but he, he knew he was guilty because he went on and hung himself, didn't he? Now there's many passages in the Bibles that, that warn of false professors. Hebrews 6, I believe, uh, refers to where it talks about the one who were once enlightened and tested of the heavenly gift. It's impossible for them to, to, um, to renew them unto repentance again. False professors. People who have never tasted 
truly tasted the Lord. People who were never truly saved. Judas heard Jesus speak. He saw the miracles. He participated in the ministry. But Judas was apostate. He had never been born again. Jesus said, he talked about those being cleansed. And he said, but I speak not of all of you. Not all of you have been cleansed. Jesus never truly believed. He went out from them that it may be manifest, made manifest that he never really was them to start with. Okay, so that's Judas. I, I, I listened to a sermon recently on this passage where the preacher told the congregation, he said, there's likely a bunch of Judases in the church. He said, not only God-haters, but hypocrites who come to church and read your Bibles but don't really love Jesus. And then he set up a standard of righteousness for the people to meet, or otherwise they probably weren't even saved. Now it's true, there are false professors, Jesus warns about that, but they were never in Christ. It's also true that Jesus told his disciples that there was a betrayer there to comfort them. In verse 18 of our text, I speak not of all of you, I know whom I have chosen, but that, he, that the scripture might be fulfilled. In verse 19 he says, Now I tell you before it come, that when it is come to pass, you may believe that I am he. So Jesus even tells them this to comfort his disciples. Well, that preacher in the sermon I heard pointed out to people who follow godly examples. He said, don't be a Judas. He said, be like Joseph. Don't be Judas. Be like Joseph. Do this and, and act this way and so forth. But I tell you, the answer to not being a Judas is not to try harder or do more. Because when he said that, I thought, well, what about Peter? As I was listening to that, that's what I was thinking of. What about Peter? What's the difference between Judas and Peter? Because th this man was saying, Judas, listen to preaching. Judas was always around Jesus. Judas confessed when it was easy and denied him when it was going to cost him something. You know, Judas didn't have cat eyes and devil horns. Whenever Jesus said one was going to betray him, remember Peter said, ask him which one of us is going to be. They didn't even know. Even when Judas got up and left, they still didn't know it was Judas. Outwardly, Judas was a, probably a good man, a likable person. But what about Peter? Because you get to the end there. Peter says, I'll die for you, Jesus. And Jesus says, no. Before the cock crows, you're going to deny me three times. And deny is just as strong a word as betray is. Peter listened to preaching. So did Judas. Peter was always around Jesus. Jesus. So was Judas. Peter confessed Christ when it was easy and then denied him when it was going to cost him something. One of the first opportunities Peter was put into to, to show the, the depth of his allegiance to Christ, he denied him and was afraid of the counsel of a little girl. Judas did the works of Satan. Well, so did Peter. When Peter rebuked the Lord in Matthew 16, Jesus said, Get thee behind me, Satan, for thou art an offense unto me, for thou savest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. Judas's treachery was vile. But was Peter's sin any better? 
See, at that point, people say, well, if you're truly a believer, you're not going to fall into gross sin. Well, how gross, how terrible a sin was Peter's sin? I'm not saying that, that, that what Judas did wasn't bad. It was terrible, but so was what Peter did. The difference between the two men is not their works. It can't be because Peter's was just as, just as terrible. What was the difference between the two? You and I surely sometime have not loved the Lord with all of our heart. I've been afraid to tell, stand up whenever the Lord's name was blasphemed. The only difference between Judas and Peter was the love of Jesus. That was the difference between these two men. Peter greatly sinned, but he was in Christ. Peter sinned, but he was born again. Peter sinned and didn't fall away forever because Jesus, having loved his own, which were in the world, loved them unto the end. The difference was not that Peter was stronger or that Peter was a fighter or Peter had great discipline or, or Peter had quiet times in the morning or, or Peter was stronger um, in, 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 um, you know, physically and mentally. The difference is Christ. That's the only difference. It wasn't even Peter's good works because Peter sinned. I think that's why this is pointed out here back to back to show the difference between the two. And that's why John set this up, that, that he loved his own which were in the world. He loved them unto the end. Why did Peter not fall away? Because the Lord prayed for him. In Luke 22, the Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you, just like he desired Judas. He may sift you as wheat. But what's the difference? But I have prayed for thee that, thou, that thy faith fail not. And when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. He loved Peter. And he loved him to the end. And Satan was gunning for Peter. And he prays for Peter. He keeps Peter. He protects Peter. Peter was washed. He was cleansed. He was born again. After Judas betrayed the Lord, he was sorrowful and went and hung himself. After Peter betrayed the Lord, he was sorrowful. And he went out fishing. And there he saw Jesus on the shore. And he dove in, the boat couldn't get to shore fast enough. He dove in the water and swam to get there because he couldn't wait for the boat to get there. And he came, Lord, you know I love you. You know I love you, Lord. What was the difference? It was Christ was the difference. For Christ first loved him. He was born again. He was in Christ. And Jesus would not let him fall away. The difference was that he was born again and dwelt by the Spirit. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He came to save the, those that the Father gave him. Having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. In Christ we are justified. We have our sins taken away. We have his imputed righteousness. We're indwelled by his spirit. We're saved by his grace. The difference between Judas and Peter was Peter was loved eternally. Peter was saved. He was kept. He was justified. He was sanctified. Jesus was the difference. 
Now, only a dark heart would hear this message and think this is an excuse to go out and live a wicked life. But you are freed from the condemnation of the law, child of God, and free to love Christ and love one another. Have you forsaken Christ? Have you denied him? Do you know what the answer is? To come to him. When Judas failed, you know what he did not do? He did not come to Christ. He did not come for forgiveness. He didn't come to ask for mercy. Because he was not born again. He did not have the love of God abiding in him. He was not alive to Christ. Don't run from Christ, but come to him. Find forgiveness. When we sin, 1 John tells us we have an advocate with the Father. There is salvation in Christ. There is forgiveness in Christ. There is life in Christ. The difference between the two men was not what they did, but what Christ did for them. Peter rested in the faith and the assurance that Christ was his Lord and Savior. And I pray that you do too. I pray that you